You are listening to the BU Podcast with Michael Arrington. We discuss social justice, childhood trauma, current events, hip-hop, and so much more. Now, here's your host, Michael Arrington. Yo, what's good? It's your man, Mike Arrington, back. BU Podcast, another episode. Got my guest today, Aaron White. Very good friend of mine, man, licensed psychologist. Um, <clears throat> we're going to talk about black trauma, talk about his his road to, you know, coming out of the DMV, playing basketball, and how he made it to a major university, and, and, and how he got to where he's at now, and how he's affecting the youth, and making, you know, good strides, and, and bringing about change in school districts and whatnot, and fatherhood, and black trauma, and things of that nature. But um, before we get into that, I kind of wanted to kind of give you some um, a little story in regards to how I got to my journey to um, to where I'm at now. So back in um, back in 1996, I was um, a special ed assistant for a middle school in South Central. And back then, mid 90s, man, every kid was every black kid and brown kid was had some kind of emotional disturbance or some type of mental health issue. Uh, they were giving them, you know, Ritalin and all these different, uh, you know, type of psychotropic, psychotropic medications. It was just a thing, man. Any kid that was defiant, you know, didn't listen. They put them in these segregated environments. And um, that was kind of the precursor to where we are now, right? Um, it's not as overt because it, it got, it, it, it was out of hand. Maybe like, you know, right around the No Child Left Behind days. But how I kind of got, fell into the field um, the school psychologist at the time, man, very good friend of mine and mentor, Dr. Uh, John Abdullah Hassan, told me I had the gift, man. He said that, you know, the way kids resonated to me, the way that I kind of, you know, had this insight on the kids' psyches, the kids' behavior. He felt like I was a, a, a shoe-in for this field, told me to go back to school back in the 90s. Uh, being hard-headed, I didn't listen. But years later, here I am. But during that time, and I had a kind of chance to see, you know, firsthand that school to prison pipeline, man, and like where some of these kids came from and how they interacted at school and how they interacted at home. And then years later, I worked eight years for the school board and then I, I went to the L.A. County probation and I worked in the probation department, worked in the juvenile halls. And I had a first hand of first hand glance at the other side of the school to prison pipeline and why those kids were there. And kind of systemically how some of those kids got there, how some of their environments kind of bred them to be there. And um, so I just, you know, wanted to find a way to help my people and help kids out and help families out. Um, and then 16 years of that got me to the school district again and working in special ed again and kind of seeing it now structurally from a leadership standpoint, how systemic some of the um, fundamental uh, breakdowns are in the school system and how antiquated it is and how it's set up for kids to fail and everything is kind of based off of, you know, test scores and assessments and um, academic achievement. And there's no real regard for the social emotional component, like social skills and how these kids can tangibly take information that we're feeding them and then be productive citizens from it. So, 
I'm here to try to make that change. This is why I'm kind of going for my doctorate and trying to being able in the forefront, man, sitting at those tables, man, where people are making policy and making real wholesale change in school systems, man. want to be able to help that um, because I've seen too much. And, you know, my experience has given me so much. So I have an opportunity to kind of make that change, man. But really, it really stems from me just trying to help kids out and trying to give them opportunities that, people before them generations before them didn't have and um not that i was some road scholar stellar student myself i'm a product of the public school system as well but here i am on the precipice of my doctorate you know um in a position to make wholesale change man and some of the work that i'm doing in my district and some of the work that i'm doing with my new company as a consultant it's really to help families help students get to their level of achievement man and and get the maximum out of them you know what i mean not everybody's gonna go to college not everybody's gonna you know thrive and you know for your university you know some of these kids will be entrepreneurs some of these kids will be um web designers or graphic artists or plumbers or electricians i want to get them there faster without having to have that five ten year gap of just loss and just out there living off the fat of the earth you know getting into drugs getting into gangs getting into you know the prison system and things of that nature man so i want to help them get to their better self earlier than i did and so that's one of the reasons why this podcast is was created was to to give people information to help them in any way possible man if it's getting them to the next level or getting them to the person that get them to the next level, um, giving them information to be able to help their children and be able to help their family, be able to help their students, be able to help their friends. This is what this is here for, man. So uh, we'll be right back with my man, Aaron White. Hope you enjoy the conversation. BU Podcast, Mike Arrington in the building. You are listening to the BU Podcast with Michael Arrington. Yo, what's good, y'all? We back to BU Podcast. Your man, Mike Arrington. I got my man, my brother, my man, Aaron White in the building, man. Let the people know who you are, what you do, bro. Yes, sir. Thanks for having me here, Mike. Uh, Appreciate it. All love, my brother. Uh, My name is Aaron White, um, former Division I collegiate athlete uh, in the sport of basketball. Now I am a uh, licensed therapist, licensed mental health clinician and a school psychologist currently. I bet, man. So um, since you mentioned the basketball thing, let's get into it, man. When did you uh, you fall in love with basketball and you decided that was going to be what took you to college? Man, I, I just started falling in love at an early age, honestly. I, I think it was back when the Dream Team, 1992, you know, that Dream Team came about. They was doing all the uh, promotions. You know, you had Magic, Bird. Uh, Jordan, um, you know, all those guys, man. I just started falling in love with the sport then and just used to see my dad play pickup games at the park and stuff like that and just just gravitated towards it, just loved the game. It was something about putting that ball in the in the hoop that just, right. just got a thrill of it. I, that, fell in, I fell in love with it, bro. I think the first, first game I ever watched uh, was 1979 – um, NCAA championship magic versus bird. Oh, that's I think, a good one. I think my dad had everybody over the house, man. And it was like one of them events 
back then, you know, because college basketball was a thing, but it wasn't like yeah. a super duper thing until Bird yeah. and Magic lined up, right? Yeah. And so from that, then, you know, the Lakers drafted Magic and I was hooked mm-hmm. ever since. Man, there, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Watching watching the Dream Team and then, you know, George, just watching Jordan in the 90s, you know, go against the, the Lakers, you right. know, the, the Trailblazers and, and, and the Pistons and all them just, you know, getting it done. Those iconic moments Jordan had in the finals, those, you know, I grew up on that. So that's really when I started really loving the game. I bet. So uh, coming out of high school, man, uh, tell me about the recruiting process and then the eventual uh, university you end up choosing. Oh, man, the the recruiting process was, uh, you know, it was a fun process. I, I think it was also stressful for my parents. Uh, for, for me, growing up on the East Coast in, in Maryland, you know, it really started in middle school and going to a, uh, a private high school. You know, a lot of the student athletes back home in football, basketball, you know, go to these Catholic schools or these private schools back east and the D.C. area. And that, that's what I did. And so, you know, got recruited to one of those high schools. And so um, really what, what ended up happening for me, man, is, is uh, I could have gone to like a fifth year of high school to prep school. Um, but you know, I, I probably, my pride got in the way. I felt like I was ready, uh, just to go straight into, um, collegiate into that level. And, uh, you know, I just fell in love with a school that was uh, about three and a half hours away, um, in the tri-state New Jersey, New York area, went on a visit, like the players, the, the, uh, the campus and everything. And that's kind of how I, how I decided it, you know, I didn't think too much of it. I had a sister at Temple University that was like 45 minutes away. And so I just ended up choosing Ryder University. But um, I don't want to say I would do things again, do things differently. But I think looking back, coming into uh, being a freshman in college, I was 17. And so, you know, once you get in the Division One athletes, you're playing against these guys are grown, 19, right. 20, right, 21. Right. You know, I think I probably would have done a fifth year and going in at 18. Right. Nah, no <laughs> <You> doubt. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And and develop my, you know, my my body and, and put strength on and, and and got better that way. But everything works out how it's supposed to, you know what I'm saying? And I'm exactly. a firm, firm believer of that. So um that that's a little bit about the recruiting process though. But it it was um intense for my parents, you know, just always having coaches call, uh, always maybe trying to plan a visit, you know, right. and then all the, the, uh, the travel ball that I was doing, all the traveling, it, it was right. a lot. It was a lot. Yeah. I know. I know for me, man, I, I was, I was, a people probably don't know. I was a hoop fanatic up until like, I didn't want to play football at all until I got to high school and the coach was like, man, come on, just play, just play. So I decided to yeah. play. And um, I was always a Husky dude, so yeah. it just, it made sense. But I was always quick on my feet. So yeah. the recruiting process for me, man, I like my dad, like, basked in that whole thing because it was mm-hmm. like he it, he had a chance to kind of brag on his son a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and, sure. And so – but I didn't get a – I didn't get a, a legit offer – Mm-hmm. a scholarship offer until my last football game. Wow. And so like, I was, I was stressing, bro. It was like, you know, towards the end of the year, <laughs> I'm like, we wasn't even that good. I had a hell wow. of a year though. And so yeah. my last football game, I played, 
I've, I've separated both my shoulders as consecutive plays. Jeez, man. And you still was playing? I didn't miss it. I didn't miss it down. And um, I ended up with 37 tackles that game. And um, so my dad was That's sitting next to legendary, man. It was. It was. I look back on it now. I was just I just was dumb and young, didn't know no better. But um, the, the crazy part about it was my dad was sitting next to UNLV, San Diego State, and Michigan. Mm-hmm. He was sitting next to them scouts. And um, Michigan was like, yeah, we give you a partial. Um, UNLV was like, we, you know, we don't know. We give him a partial. Everybody was telling to give me a partial. I was like, man, I can't afford it. I need a full, I need a full yeah. deal. Yeah, you, know? you need that full deal. Yeah. Right. And so when I went on my trips, I went to Washington State. I went to Syracuse. I went to uh, Rutgers. I went to Vanderbilt. I went to um, Washington State. And last minute, I want to say I had to take the SAT again because I, I I did bad the first time I took it. Yeah. And so I had to take it again. And so once I passed it and got that 1050, uh, that's when UNLV was like, come through. Come through, man. Come <laughs> so, but yeah, it was uh, it was nerve, it was more nerve-wracking for me. Uh, mm-hmm. because at that time, you talk in 93, there was only so many football powerhouses on the West Coast. Right. And so, you know. Me being young and naive, I was so worried about what team can get me to the NFL, mm-hmm. right? And little did I know, six games into my career, I shattered my MCL, LCL, uh, ACL, and it was a wrap. <laughs> uh, that, that, man, that that's a story, man. And, you know, you touched on something. You you say you ain't get the scholarship to your last game. And, you know, when you think about uh, African-Americans and athletes and young athletes for many of us man like that that was that was my way it was like basketball or else right you know what i'm saying i wasn't even thinking of like just going to school to you know get my education it was kind of like basketball or else and um i don't that didn't come from my family or nothing like that i think it was just more of being caught up in the midst of being an athlete and grinding right. so hard, you know what I'm saying? I couldn't even see nothing else, man. And so right. for a lot of folks, though, that is the only option. It's like excel in this sport or or else. Or else. Right. You know and, I, and that's that's part of the next question I'm getting into, man. Um, because you are, a, you know, a former elite athlete and now you're in the mental health field, it's important that a lot of these athletes, like you saw Simone Biles over during the Olympics, you saw Michael Phelps before her. Um, and then Kevin Love got a whole new initiative mm-hmm. that he's doing in regards to mental health and athletes. Mm-hmm. And people don't realize that the the sacrifice that goes into athleticism, especially at an elite level, yes. right? And we know it from a, a minuscule level, right. um, from just, you know, being good in our area or whatever. We're not on a right. Simone Biles level where it's a national right. event. Right. And yeah. so global, global. man. Right. So like, yeah. how do you like, what are some of the things that you juxtapose like athleticism and mental health and why it's important to have both? Um, so I, to, to, to me, the, 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 uh, the correlation, right. When I think about sports and, and mental health, you know, it, it's all about your perspective and it all goes hand in hand. And when I think about, uh, you know, growing up and, and playing sports, you know, during the course of a, a game, you're going to, you experience all emotions, man. Um, whether it's depression and you got anxiety before the game, if you play in a big game, you're going to have some butterflies or, 
big game, whether you about to shoot big free throws, um, right? You know, or whether your team is getting blown out, and you know, on on a big stage, you're gonna feel sad, anger, frustration. And so, what I realized, man, is is playing sports. It really helped me to uh, develop a, a lot of skills, um, a lot of abilities, uh, communication, which is important. It allowed me to build rapport and, and network with my teammates and coaches. Um, you know, and, and really, when you look at mental health at the, at the core of it, that's what it's about, man. It's about your connections. It's about uh you know, a positive mindset. It's about believing um, in your abilities and your skills. It's about uh, surrounding yourself with the with the right people. And, you know, you can look at former, we all can see this, Mike, you can look at former teammates and you can see maybe their home environment wasn't the best. You can see maybe they didn't have the support system outside of what y'all did um, and how that impacted them when y'all came together. And, yeah, for sure, and, man. I, I feel like like when I was younger and I was coaching right after, you know, my my playing days was over, I used to use athletics, basketball in particular, mm-hmm. as a form of social skill building. Mm-hmm. Right. Because you learn mm-hmm. you learn how, like you said, you learn rapport, you learn mm-hmm. how to deal with authority with coaches, mm-hmm. you learn about teamwork. Right. You learn right. about sharing. You learn mm-hmm. about, um, you know, working together as one. Right. Um, you learn about sacrifice, all these different things. And all these are like pillars in the the mental health of Mm -hmm. the field. So like, I I really feel like it's important, especially on a secondary high school going into college level that we, 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 we integrate that more Mm -hmm. in in the school system itself, not just ancillarily, you know, you got a therapist or whatever. I think every, every team, Mm -hmm. regardless of the sport, should have a therapist on hand as part mm-hmm. of the staff. A hundred percent, man. Cause what ends up happening is, is all of those issues get put back on either uh team, current teammates or on coaches and they might be dealing with their own stuff. Right. Um, you know, and, and you do, you do have some teammates who do have the resources and do have the support, but right. You know, they, they are trying to, you know, make it on their own. So I, I, I agree with you, man. Every team should have a, a, a mental health um, therapist, but, but I think most importantly, like the, the camaraderie, the, the teamwork, like I've been able to walk in the rooms and because I was able to be around people from different um, diverse backgrounds and, and, and different demographics and different social emotional, um, I mean, um, socioeconomical uh, statuses, I feel comfortable. And a right. lot of that came from just playing sports. Yeah. Just your experience, right? Just like my experience. You, you, you have an opportunity. Like I know for me, when I play, start playing travel ball at about 13, mm-hmm. you know, that's the first time I ever went outside of the state of California. Right. And so then I had the opportunity to go to Tennessee and Vegas mm-hmm. and Florida mm-hmm. and all these different, right. you know, these different tournaments. Right. And you deal mm-hmm. with all these different people from different walks of life. Different right? walks of life. And, right. 
And it's it's important. And I came from a city that was pretty much a melting pot. You had like mm-hmm. Filipinos and Mexicans yeah. and Blacks and Samoans. Uh-huh. And you had this diversity, right? But it was mm-hmm. different because we all mm-hmm. from the same area, mm-hmm. right? So we all kind of like-minded in, in, in our approach to things. It's different, though, when you get, especially if you grew up in California. California is right. a different beast altogether. California you know that. is different, man. It's just different. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's different. It's different when the weather is always good. Oh, man. So Tell me about that. You know what I'm yes. saying? Like, so yeah. it, we take it we take it for granted when you're from here because you don't know right. any different, right? Right. So you from the East Coast and you're dealing with that snow and that cold. And then, Man. you know, there's months when you can't even go outside. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And yeah, sometimes man. out here, man, in California, on Christmas, it's 95 degrees. We take flip-flops. Listen, it's, so it's different. Yeah. It's, it's very different. And, and speaking of that, exactly. You know, I, I think I learned to use uh, athletics as a tool, you know, and as a resource to be able to travel and get out of my comfort zone, essentially, um is what we talked about and i think that's what i bring to uh you know the mental health space uh, you know into working with students and families and clients and you know just in relationships right it's it's the the confidence that i have because of my experiences because of my exposed what i've been exposed to a lot through you know what i mean playing sports or uh just my parents taking me to different environments um so I could see different things, you know what I mean? So right. I wasn't caught off guard about what's right. happening, you know? So all of it, it goes hand in hand with, you know, you know, how I'm able to move out here and, and do different things and um, self-awareness, you know what I'm saying? For, for sure. For sure. So speaking of that, man, you grew up, you grew up in the DMV, right? So for those who don't yeah. know, it's the the what is it? What's the DMV? DC, Maryland, for? Virginia, baby. Not right. the Department of Motor Vehicles. Not the Department of Motor Vehicles. Yeah. That's for yeah. sure. Yeah. So I was born in South Carolina. You know what I'm saying? And then we moved when I was eight years old to Maryland, right outside of the Washington D.C. area. And that's where I went. Finished from like third grade all the way to high school, right there. DC, yeah. So Maryland, so Virginia. tell me the difference. I know they they had a nickname for. Uh, the, the 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 Baltimore Maryland area they used to call it oh, uh Body Moore Murderland yes yes <laughs> yeah yeah Baltimore uh it's very interesting um Mike you know DC and Baltimore is like forty five minutes away right but they are two different worlds man you know they right. got their both got their own news um agencies both got their own metros. The lingo is different. The yeah, culture sure. is different. The, um, you know, the dress is different. The style, all of that is very different. And so I grew up on the D.C. side, so I never went to Baltimore that much, um, even though it was in my state. Right. Um, I would be more in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. And growing up, honestly, uh, coming from South Carolina, it was like a culture shop, man. South Carolina was just essentially black and white people right um people just kind of doing black people white, we just doing our things making you know making it moving when i got to maryland uh man it was a melting pot and i seen everybody just kind of moving in unison like right. you know everybody was dapping the same it didn't matter if you was black white right right you, you all knew what it was you know what exactly saying? we we it was, I felt like more of a sense of um, comfortable where I was like, wow, damn, white people doing that? 
Indian Indian folks, Asian folks, right? You know, it's Latinos doing that, and it just kind of felt like we was all. It's it's such a, a a condensed place and such a close proximity to everybody. You know, you kind of have to. There's no right. way around. You know what I'm saying? Because everybody right. right here. So you know, I think it forces people to, um, you know, talk to people outside of your cultures or. Right. Uh, go to eat at different places or, um, you know, be around different people. And that, I'm really appreciative of that growing up in that area in a way I feel like I'm spoiled, man. Right. Um, because from there, you know, I could go to Philly in two hours. I could go to New York in five. Um, you know, those is like day trips if you really right. want Yeah, that's to. it. That's you know the, what I'm the, saying? the difference between the East Coast and the West Coast is that everything is closer. Proximity. Everything is just closer. And so I could really understand what people, you know what I'm saying, how they was moving in Philly or Baltimore or right. Newark, New Jersey or New York or, right. um, you know, even up to Boston. I just felt like, man, that's all we 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 getting it over here. We right. touching everybody. So. That was really dope to me. Um, and I thank my parents all the time. That that move changed my life, man. For sure. So, yeah, we're going to talk about um, black trauma, man, and, and the myths of mental health in the African-American community. But let me give you some context to get people some context of what I mean. So you and I know very well that when you start to get to a certain level of academia, we start to become less and we start to become like one of one. Right. Yeah. Or yeah. one of few. Yeah. Right. And so um, like in particular, you know, when I when I met you, you were working for a school district. We worked for the same mm-hmm. school district where mm-hmm. you were probably the only black male therapist we had. Right. Yes. In a school yes, in a school district of 30,000 kids. Right. Right. And so what people don't understand, people that aren't familiar with the black experience is that there's a lot of weight that comes with the daily microaggressions and the the, mm-hmm. the the just the daily just level of you know dog whistling mm-hmm. racism you know what i'm saying that mm-hmm. people don't really notice right yeah. and um you have to explain it to people man and sometimes it gets too heavy right and there's, there's always yeah. this level of tension that you kind of walk around with mm-hmm. that people don't really take they people really don't consider when mm-hmm. it comes to the totality of stress and and things of that nature, man. So let me get your perspective on that. Then we'll get deeper into the myths of mental health. Um, man, you know, when you just laid out those numbers, that, that, that's staggering, man. Like you think about it in terms of male therapists, one out of a school district of 30,000 kids, that's crazy. But, um, you know, I, I think a lot about it, man, when, when I go to work, you know, representation matters. For sure. Um, part of me, you know, I feel honored and pleased that I'm able to be and blessed that I'm in this position. But also the other side of me is is sometimes, um, I don't want to call it sad, but just, you know, hoping that I can instill in something, you know, where somebody can see something in me that they will come into this profession because we need more support. Right. Um but it's, you know, somebody like yourself or, or like myself, uh, essentially, I mean, we're considered to be unicorns, right? right? And when you talk about the the microaggressions and, you know, the barriers, I, I think a lot of that happens, Mike, at like 
early on. Right. And so what ends up happening is it just deters and it turns off students or people who want to get into this field or anywhere in life because of the microaggressions and the barriers and the hoops they got to go through just right. to, to get there. And I think that's one of the bigger issues that I'm starting to realize, uh, even in being in this position is like, man, some, some of the hoops and barriers that I had to like go through, you know what I'm saying? Right. Just to get here, it's almost like you talk about beating odds. It's, right. it's crazy. And most people just can't uh, afford to do that, man. When they're trying to like provide for their families or, you know, take care of themselves and they end up getting um, turned off because it's just so much, you got to do to, to, right. You know what I'm saying? To get into this. Space. Exactly. I remember going through my graduate program, my MFT program, and I was the, it was two black people of, I want to say close to 3,500 students in that, in that program. Right. And then out of that, mm-hmm. there was like maybe 29 black women. Right. And then, you know, right. mental health is a female dominated mm-hmm. field. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that with any kind of disrespect or anything, but I'm saying that, though, when you and I travel in these circles, mm-hmm. you know, our perspective is always unique because we're one of few right. men in the room when you talk about therapy and licensed therapists and things mm-hmm. of that nature. Mm-hmm. So there's also that weight, too. Mm-hmm. Right. And then absolutely. But I think what's important for people like you and I is, is that we're in these spaces and we have these opportunities to not only educate children and we educate the adults around them, too, because we Mm -hmm. are, like you said, we are sometimes the only representation of black men that they get. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So how you carry yourself, that's Mm -hmm. also a way. You're right. You always got to be on point. Always, man. And. You know, it, it's it's one of those things where, you know, it's like I I don't go to work just for a job. I'm I'm going there, it's like a job and a responsibility. Exactly. That I that I feel, you know what I'm saying? Cause this might be the only time, you know what I'm saying, this person encounters a a, a black male right. right on a professional level. Now, like you said, shout out to the women, the black women, because they there. Right. You know what I'm saying? And they keep coming they 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 doing more and so uh it's still a long way to go but the black women are constantly you know i'm saying over i don't even want to say overachieving because they're they're great but they're constantly getting in that room uh and getting in those places and and talking to my wife at one point i said you know they're thinking there hasn't really been a black male out in cali that i've met who uh, has been, um, you know, my, my boss or whatever. It's right. always been a black woman right. who has been <laughs> at right. the highest level who, or it's been somebody from another, you know, ethnicity right. giving me an opportunity. And, and to me, that's, that's, um, I mean, it's staggering, man. Just thinking about it, talking about it. It's just like, dang, right. Crazy. It's crazy. Cause like, I look at my caseload last year, man. And I think I've probably seen, probably well over 700 kids through the course of a, a, mm-hmm. a year. Mm-hmm. And, but my caseload was at a, a staggering 103. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, but out of that 103, 
probably 65 to 75% of my caseload was Hispanic females. Yeah. Right. And so, but what one of the kids told me, which was dope was, you know, she was a 10th grader. She was like, look, it's important that you're here. And it's important that you got all these young ladies coming to you Mm -hmm. as a father figure role model Mm -hmm. type Mm -hmm. to kind of give them the blueprint of what a good man is. Mm. Right. Because they come from situations where they have father issues as well. And so, but I said the responsibility though of that (laughs) is heavy. You know what I'm saying? So, because you know, I'm walking around with 1700 kids every day, yeah. and everybody's looking to me for all the answers. Like, I'm the Rosetta Stone for black people, right? And right. so, there's always right. that, that responsibility, right. too. But I think what's, right. it, what's important for people to understand is that when you have these microaggressions, so I'll give you an example of a situation. So, it was me and two other my black co workers, we were at the district headquarters. Mm-hmm. And we were trying to get in. The door was locked. It was a lady looking at us and she wouldn't let us in. So we finally got in. And then she came around the corner like, um, oh, do you guys work here? Not forget the fact that we all had badges on. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. She had to ask that question. Right. And so mm-hmm. two of us shrugged it off. We kept bushing. It wasn't no big deal. But through the course of the day, I started to think about it, man. This is an everyday occurrence for us. Every every <laughs> day, and sometimes it's, you just ask. And, and and this is the irony of that. What you're saying is is it's almost you talk about the responsibilities. And as a as a black male, you know, we could talk about all the things that's happening in society today, where you know the racial profiles that's been going on right. for centuries of, of black men in this country. When you're talking about maybe. Uh, long the numbers are staggering right with that that um the pipeline to, to right. prison and things of that nature right and then you talk about maybe uh people in your own community feeling a, a type of way that you're trying to better yourself and then you know you going to work and you feel in these small microaggressions uh you know when you're just trying to do your job right when you're just trying to essentially just be right you know what i'm saying not bothering nobody and i think after a while that's that's the start that that's the things that kind of weigh on people because it's just like man i'm just trying to you know what i'm saying live my life and be the be the best i could be right you know what i'm saying like i ain't bothering you why you gotta bother me yeah there's always that extra weight man and it's 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 a it's a tough thing uh but you brought up something that i wanted to segue into next man is 2020 was a very, very emotionally charged year. Mm-hmm. Forget the fact that COVID existed. You had the Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and all these types yeah. of things. And yeah. it's, it seems like the world kind of stopped mm-hmm. for a minute so everybody can see it. Not that right. it, it didn't exist before right. and it hasn't existed after. But for that mm-hmm. moment, everybody was at the house and they were able to see it. Mm-hmm. And so that we just had a recent shooting of a young man. He was shot 60 times by the cops while he was handcuffed. Mm -hmm. It's just processing those things Mm -hmm. is part of that weight, right? Think about this from a mental health perspective. Mm -hmm. Think about what that does to you as a Mm -hmm. grown man, to as a father with a young child coming up in this world. And then three, you work with children. So how do we process these things for them? Man, you know, you know what, man, like that's a that's a heavy question, Mike. I'm going to be honest with you. Um, 
how do you process something that you is constantly in your face that you constantly have to keep dealing with over and over and over again right it's it's that it's that cycle um so i mean how i how i try to process it is you know uh, essentially by just trying to uh look in the mirror every day uh, um i know it's going to sound crazy but just trying to operate out of place of gratitude like i woke up today you know what i'm saying i can right. this gives me an opportunity to you know be who i am i try to always operate from the inside out and no matter what's going on i'm not naive to what's going on in society but i try to control you know what i'm saying what i can control you know what i'm saying in, right. in, in in my space and that's the energy that i'm trying to give off to my daughter i'm trying to instill in her you know she ain't even one yet but think from the inside out, you know what I'm saying? Right. Internally to external, not the other way. Cause you got to control this right. in order to control your out, out, outside. And then also, you know, with, with the students is really hunkering down on them and, and having them, you know, believe that, uh, and having them understand that they do serve a purpose out here, just like I do. Right. Um, just like you know my family does and, and my loved ones and that you know don't let the things going on in this world stop you from trying to achieve your greatness no matter right. what it is you know what i'm saying right go get what you deserve and uh have that uh internal will you know what i'm saying to to go do that right and right. navigate in this vicious cycle that we in the same the same way my my grandparents great grandparents those who came before me same way they were right. maneuvering now and i gotta do the same thing exactly i think the difficult part for these this generation of kids man from i'd say age 11 or even age 8 to about 20 is that they grew up in the age of the information age so they got so much access to excess, bro. And there's no context to it. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so when I tell teachers and, and, and people who, you know, have par parents who have, you know, kids or the teenagers or whatever, and they're having an issue with trying to connect, the, the disconnect is that we know what the world was like post or pre-social media is pre at least I know I do. Like, yeah, I, do I, like too, I said, man. I graduated high school 93. Yahoo yeah. and AOL wasn't invented till 95. Right. right. Google yeah. came in 96. Right. So yeah. so there was a whole nother I lived a whole life before there mm -hmm. was a thing called the internet, or at least it was accessible to us anyway. Mm -hmm. And so but these kids are born in 2004 or 2012 right. and right. they don't know anything but instagram and snapchat and twitter yep. and that's how they get information mm -hmm. that's how they communicate mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying and so mm -hmm. but if you don't have any context to that mm -hmm. you just got information right and so mm -hmm. you you know smartphone dumb kid you know what right. I'm saying? Because right. they got so much access to this information, they don't have any context to it. And that's the dangerous part of this whole fake news era mm -hmm. that we got now, man. And so mm -hmm. when you talk to kids, or I have a talk to kids, especially the high school kids, we just have real life conversations, man, mm -hmm. about 
these types of things, right? And so everything, so I have to give them context to mm-hmm. the shooting, right? Because I think before school let out, I think it was the Buffalo shooting that happened, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? And so mm-hmm. kids were like, man, it's always some going on, whatever, whatever. So I had to let them know what the 60s looked like. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, this is mm-hmm. the 60s all over again, bro. Yeah, we'll, yeah. This, this too will pass. Right. And and this is how you, but you have to be open and honest with them, mm-hmm. and you you can't do no sugarcoating with this group, no, because they got access to too much information. They ain't waiting for the newspaper tomorrow to give them the information. Right. They googling right. now, right? You know what I'm it, saying? So it, yeah, similar to what you say, like I I try to operate in reality. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like no this or that. You know what I'm saying? Like this is the reality of the situation and what's going on. You know what I'm saying? And and if you be real about certain things that's happening um, and be real with yourself, uh, having those conversations with the with the students about the 60s and what was happening, like that's reality. You know what I'm saying? Right. And you giving them uh, just truth, man, and, and being like authentic about it. I'm, I'm big on that. I think that's going to be able to help them in the long run. You know what I'm saying? Like that common sense training right 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 i truly believe in that yeah all right man before we get out of here man i want to ask you like i asked all my guests man you had an opportunity to have dinner with five people dead or alive man who would they be five people dead or alive man i probably i gotta put jesus on there um you know i put my father on there um i will put um I probably put MLK and Malcolm X on there. And then if I had to pick one more, I probably pick Pac. Okay. See what Tupac's talking about. See what he was on. Yeah, and those would probably be my five, man. <laughs> yeah, that's dope. Um, I definitely uh, Malcolm X and, and Martin Luther King definitely on my list um that I would want to see, man, or want to talk to. Um just to get their perspective, man, I always, when I think about Dr. King and Malcolm, for that matter, you know, both of them were in their early thirties or early right. 20, like late twenties, right. early thirties when they was yeah. on the run. So yeah, that's crazy, man. But um, I appreciate you, bro, for coming through. Um, yes, sir. Keep doing what you do, man. We all respect what you do. Um, I'll, I'll give, you know, give you your flowers now, man. You deserve it. Keep doing what appreciate you do, man. That. I admire you, bro. Uh, keep it up, man. And thanks for coming through. I appreciate you. Likewise. It's mutual, fam. For sure. All right. You are listening to The BU Podcast with Michael Arrington. Yeah, that's right. We're back. Uh, BU Podcast, Mike Arrington, man. Shout out to my guy. Aaron White for coming through, man. Appreciate you coming through, man, making the time and, uh, you know, coming through and having a real uh, in-depth, rich conversation, man. Shout out to you. Shout out to your lovely wife, man, your daughter, man. Hope all is well. Um, so, yeah, um, one of, like I, I mentioned before, uh, we started talking to Aaron and talked about my, my new company. It's called uh, MEA Training and Program Development. Um, it's really a way for me to consult with organizations, schools, teachers, administrators, man, to get them on the right path, getting them, you know, culturally relevant student engagement, which is kind of lacking in our education system now, man. Like I had mentioned before, our education system is very, very antiquated. You know, we re- we living in a, 
you know, a, a iPad 2 world with Apple 2C information. And so we need to kind of re, uh, just reformat and rethink how we teach students and what's relevant and pertinent for them to be productive citizens and giving them an opportunity to be productive citizens, man, and getting that job or getting into that school, which ultimately is about getting a job and a career or creating a career that's viable for them to be able to sustain themselves as citizens, man. And I think that's what should, the goal should be for education. And I want to help organizations, companies, schools, teachers, administrators, parents, uh, students get there. Right. I think with my experience, man, I got some close to 30 years of experience of dealing with what we used to call at risk students and just, you know, giving them an opportunity to just see it from my perspective, see it from my lens and see it because I got a chance to see it from both sides. So, you know, helping teachers kind of reach that level of how to reach their kids. Right. And, and what this is for. And then um, helping administrators and school systems reinvent ways to or, or kind of remix the things that they need to do to uh, allow their students to thrive and be safe and be happy and be productive. And I think that's kind of what it's about. I think we've lost that, especially in this day and age where the climate is so politically driven and race driven. Uh, but it's important that we really arrange victories for students, man. I think that's what this is about. And um, I hope to be in the forefront of that, man, and be in the vanguard of that. Um, I have a new website. It's www.michaelarrington.education. It's long for a reason. I didn't want it to stand out, but it's about resources and, and helping students and helping organizations and helping people be better leaders, too. I've had the opportunity of working in this bureaucratic system, man, in some of the most toxic situations, especially the, the L.A. County probation part, man. I can definitely tell you what a bad leader is, and I can tell you what some of the leaders that made me run through a wall was for, and how they how they treated me, and why I was able to run through a wall for them. So, um, man, I hope you guys have enjoyed the show. Um, first season's almost over. We got a few more uh, shows under our belt, but. You know, like I said, this is about information. Please spread the word, man. Please subscribe. Please download. Please share. Do all you can to get the word out, man. I'm really out here trying to help people. This isn't about money. This isn't about fame. This isn't about, you know, anything else but just information to help people, man. And so that's what I'm here for. Uh, another one in the can, BU Podcast. Again, shout out to my man, Aaron White. See y'all next time. Easy. You are listening to the BU Podcast with Michael Arrington. We discuss social justice childhood trauma, current events, hip-hop, and so much more. Now, here's your host, Michael Arrington. Michael Arrington.